0: Welcome to Art Fictions and welcome to this week's guest artist, Liz Elton. Liz introduces us to Max Porter's tender story of Lanny, published in 2019, which takes place on the borderline between English village life and the wilds of the forest. We meander around detritus, discovery and magical conversations with Lanny, aware of his fragile little boy body in the world, And we also venture towards Liz Elton's fascinating art practice, which is preoccupied with her love of the natural cyclical processes, which both describe and make life possible, from decomposition to recycling, potential growth and contemporary ecological concerns. All of these come to life with her uniquely genuine approach to materials. Let's get going. Liz Elton welcome today to Art Fictions. Thank you very much I'm
1: delighted to be
0: here. We should be outside in the sun mind you. Yeah. So you've chosen Lanny by Max Porter which was published in 2019. Lanny is a young boy who's moved from London with his parents to an English village. He befriends the artist Peter Blythe known as Pete, known as Mad Pete, And together they hang out after school doing art stuff and exploring the woods. Also in residence is dead Papa Toothwart. He is an eternal creature who determines life and death in the woods and delights in the village gossip. Lanny is revealed to be not normal, mysterious, almost freakishly connected with and curious about the world around him, including dead Papa Toothwart. One day, Lanny disappears. During the desperate search for him, we become enclosed in a completely weird game show. Here, Pete and parents, Jolly and Robert, take turns in nightmarish imaginings as they seek out Lanny's return. All the while, Lanny is trapped in a drain, crying desperately for his mother to find him. At the moment he realises he's going to die, he calls on dead puppet Toothwart to feed him, to give him water, which he does. Eventually, he's found safe. Time skips ahead. He's a smoking lad with his mates, messing about on his phone, chinking a beer with Pete. Liz, we cried, didn't we?
1: Yeah, just you going over it. Then oh, Lanny crying for his mother, crying to be rescued. Oh,
0: that was devastating. It was, wasn't it? Mm. There's
1: that earlier incident, isn't there, with the hedgehog caught in the drain. And I kept having that in the back of my mind, thinking, oh, no, there's going to be some terrible retribution that relates to that.
0: Just to explain to listeners, the hedgehog caught in the drain, what happens to the poor little thing? Jolie doesn't know how to rescue it. And so she decides
1: to kill it. And it's pretty much mashed and then washed away with boiling water. Oh. But dead Papa Toothwart delights in it. He really
0: enjoys it. He's watching Then he relays a sort of list of all the villagers who've killed different things over time. You know, like got them out of their misery, because that's what Jolie's trying to do. She can't rescue the hedgehog, so she's killing it so that it doesn't suffer. And then she's quite delighted with what she's done. She feels, you know, really capable.
1: Oh, yes. She looks at the knife, doesn't she? It's like they know what each other has done. I mean, that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about the book, I've been reading quite a lot of nonfiction recently. I'm part of a couple of reading groups and it's been so helpful to have a supportive group to tackle some of those texts. But I know that this discussion is about fiction and I was thinking, oh, well, what can I read? Or what have I read? And I was going back to the sort of things that I enjoyed in childhood, like Hardy, or there's a book called Stick of the Dump, or The Secret Garden, or maybe a cookery book, or maybe poetry and I was talking to my friend, the artist, Sarah Pager, and she said, well, I've just read this book, Lanny. So I thought I'd give it a go. And so many of the themes in the texts I've been reading come up in this Max Porter book but are just beautifully stitched into his prose. And he just paints his picture of this English village and this sort of cacophony of voices. And in the book, the text all sort of merges together in places where all the voices talk over each other. I was thinking about it earlier and just thinking, well, when he disappears, it's not really a case of the village pulling together and everybody sort of supporting him and and trying to find him. There's actually all sorts of different viewpoints. Everybody has their own
0: view on there. Yeah, because poor Pete is accused straight away of being a pedophile and that he's done something to him. And then there's all those assertions about their terrible parenting (laughs) as if they don't have enough to deal with.
1: And then the the villagers say things like, "Well, it wouldn't hurt her to put on a bit of makeup, would it?" And I said, "Oh." <laughs> um, but underneath is this terrible, terrible tragedy of this child who has gone missing, and it's so sort of delicious but also repulsive at the same time, which is the sort of picture of nature and the picture of the village life that I suppose Max Porter is trying to to portray. I kept thinking, gosh, you know, I I don't listen to The Archers, but if Max Porter wrote The Archers, I, I would want to listen to it. So kind of mashed up with this dark underbelly.
0: <laughs> I really love the point where Jolie is going to... Who's the woman she goes to? Is it Peggy?
1: Peggy is sort of like a witch-like character, isn't she? She's the oldest
0: person in the village, I think. I'm going to call her Mrs B. Mrs Bitch. <laughs> Mrs. Yeah, yeah. She is completely preoccupied with, you know, you're an educated person, aren't you? You know, I thought it would be very clear to not park on the verge. And, and Jolie's desperately looking for her son. And Mrs. B wants Jolie to admit she was wrong first for parking on the verge. What's her name? Mrs. Larton.
1: There's a point in that conversation, isn't there, where they, they finished trying to shout at each other through the letterbox and as she goes away, Jolie thinks, oh, you you horrible old woman, I wish you would die and then we could get someone nice in your house. And literally on the next page, Mrs. McLarton is saying, oh dear, I, I wish she would get bored and move away and then we could get someone decent in here. It's just <laughs> these completely opposed views about how the village should be and what life in the village should be like.
0: Yeah, and they sort of both typify that, anguish or that clash between the old village people who have been exposed to the war, who know what real problems are, who know what a real sense of community is, and these dreadful new people who are here part-time, you know, the commuters from London, who she says, oh you can't just belong through your mobile phone, that's not participation, that's not belonging. It
1: This seems to be such a a misunderstanding and such a sort of narrow-mindedness and lack of sympathy with each other. It's so sad because ultimately, surely they just want to find this child. There's a beautiful passage later on where Pete is, mad Pete, is sitting at his table and he has this sort of this episode of self-loathing, where he has this postcard that's been sent to him by a friend, a rebellious image of of the English countryside. And he gets a pencil or a pen, and, and, and he scratches a grid across it. He's trying to destroy it. And he talks about everything that he hates, that he hates about himself, that he hates about Englishness, about the village, about the colonial history of England. And he's tries to sort of score through this postcard even though he actually loves the image and even though he loves the friend who sent it to
0: him. Did you read uh, Max Porter's Grief is the Thing with Feathers?
1: I did because I'd read this I quickly read that and I mean I I think Lanny of the two Lanny is my favourite. I suppose it's a more sort of fleshed out novel. I mean I, I liked Grief is the Thing with Feathers. It's an expanded poem
0: isn't it? Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Both of these made me cry. That Max Porter's got a lot to answer for in terms of the tears that I have shed. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I was actually listening to
1: this on Audible in the bath. and (laughs) And I just found myself lying in the bath with tears rolling down my cheeks at the thought of this poor woman trying to think about where her son is. And then she, she has this kind of vision, doesn't she, where she is the Virgin. And she, it, she sort of scrolls through art history, the images of the Virgin, um, beginning with her dressed in blue. And then oh, she says um, he becomes a man lying across her. A big, long-muscled man carved, released from whatever invisible rock he was imprisoned in. Clearly, it's the, the Michelangelo Pieta with this enormous Christ. It says, draped across my lap, bearded, his big knob falling down towards the earth. And Robert was in the background, tiny, desperately harvesting, kneeling down, pulling desperately at straws. But it's like she has a, she almost has a vision where she sees where Lanny is. It's like he's been exhumed, you know, cut out of the rock, I suppose, like the Michelangelo prisoners. You know, they're released from the rock that they've been entombed in. I mean, there are religious overtones in the book. This, It's almost as if dead Papa Toothport is trying to claim his son. He, he recognises his son in, in Lanny. Now, I love that part with Peggy, the, the old lady in the village. There's quite a bit of talk about witchcraft and the history of the village and the people that are buried there. And Peggy seems to know all of this. There's a mention of, I can't remember the woman's name, but from centuries before. And Max Porter says, of course, witches don't exist. She was just an inquisitive cook.
0: I love that line. <laughs> so because of this book, I watched Princess Mononoke. Have you seen that? No, It's a Japanese anime from Heiyo Miyazaki from Studio Ghibli. And it's so beautiful. It is about the forest and the spirit world and the human world and industry. And there's a a forest spirit. And uh, Prince Ashitaka, he wants to find a way for human industry to live in harmony with the forest. I
1: almost watched that.
0: I can't remember whether it was in Max Porter's book or when I watched Princess Mononoke, but somehow I thought the meek shall inherit the earth. Yeah. The meek shall inherit the remnants of what's left of the earth after it's ravaged and raped by industry. Let's hope not.
1: Well, yeah. I've been watching some quite interesting documentaries recently. There's um, Thomas Piketty, Capital in the 21st Century, and it is a a history of capital and of wealth distribution. So you mean it's a horror story? Well, I mean, he is an economist, and um, I I just thought it was really very well written and very well explained how we got to where we are today and what we are in danger of going back to in terms of lack of social mobility and wealth distribution. And they go back to the doomsday book book we're, we're only talking hundreds of years, it's actually not that long a period, and how wealth has been accumulated and how wealth has been held. And he questions of whether we will go back to that lack of social mobility, where to be poor is a death sentence thinking about the layers of history that um, that Piketty discusses and the way that Max Porter does it by talking about the Doomsday Book, talking about the characters in the village. And I think in Lanny, it's as if layers of history, all present, all at the same time, and you see them through dead Papa Toothwart. I'm, I'm not saying that Max Porter is talking about well, I suppose the way he is talking about social mobility isn't he? he's talking about the village and who the new people are that have come into the village I mean Jolie's husband uh, works in the city he commutes every day they've chosen that village because of its proximity to London
0: he starts off a bit like a caricature I thought and Jolie is an ex-actress and now she's not working and he works in a city and clearly makes all the money and he finds Lanny incredibly weird and as the book develops, you get a sense of how much he misses the possibility of seeing his son in the morning, for instance, and how, I guess, ashamed he is of saying that his son is weird to his boss, because his boss then relays it back to him. And then he realises how horrible that is that he's said this about his own son. And he has that choice in the
1: mornings, doesn't he, of, of should he get the early train and get a seat and avoid talking to someone that he finds really annoying? Or should he get an extra 20 minutes with Lanny in the
0: morning? And I think he actually chooses the earlier train. He becomes truly sympathetic when he goes over to speak to Pete. And then he ends up having an impromptu lunch and Jolie turns up and Lanny is there drawing the Minotaur. He then says, you know, this is the happiest time I've had in such a long time. And then at another point, Jolie says, I want to have dinner parties with people like Pete and people that tell stories and people that fall asleep. I don't want to have dinner parties with the people who one should or one ought to. And at those two moments, both Jolie and Robert seem like very similar, very connected characters, even though they start off poles apart. Yeah, but at another
1: time, Jolie looks at her husband in such a, a disconnected way. She describes him as sprawling across the bed, asleep, like a dead tennis player. I just thought that was delightful. I, I just laughed out loud. I, I mean, I think dead Papa Tooth, Walt. There's so many parts of this book where I want to quote what he said. Just outrageous things. There's a, a lot about decomposition in the book. There's a lot about his connectedness to the the countryside I mean he's described as wearing moss socks and pebble dash skin but he he shapeshifts all the time doesn't he there's some beautiful descriptions of him swinging through the countryside. Have you got a quote for us? Yes it's, it's quite near the beginning and it says dead Papa Toothwalk he's so thirsty from watching all the adorable decomposition and keeping up with all the grinding lyric practical nonsense of their days He peers into the kitchen of the boy's house and watches the child drinking milk and he sees the cold liquid pouring into the boy's belly, trickle, puddled pond lake, into the cellular cathedrals of his organs, into his bones. He is drunk on the hydration and nourishment of the boy. Glorious, he sings as he swings his way back into the woods, flinging himself in 30-foot arcs between telegraph poles, dressed as a barn owl with car tire arms, glorious trick of the species. Isn't that beautiful? Mm. It's uh, everything mixed up, everything equivalent. There's a beautiful part where someone says, bags of shopping, bags of rubbish. And you can see in Toothwort's Eyes, there's no difference.
0: There is no difference. And he does love the boy. And at one point he does say that he's so tempted to pluck Lanny out of the village and have him as his mirror and his key. I thought that was fantastic as well. And it's stunning, isn't it?
1: And I hadn't realized, but it's it seems to actually be Peggy who intercedes for Lanny. She's talking to Toothwart. She says, I know what you're up to, give the boy back. And then of course, at the end, Peggy dies. So it's almost like there's an exchange of lives. And in fact, she has a heart attack and she's been dead for 15 minutes. She's still propped against the gate and several villagers say hello to her until eventually the the wind blows her over.
0: She's a lovely character. And at that point, her brothers, who've died in the war, return and they're playing cricket out the back or something.
1: And also, I'm sure a lot of people have read Jane Bennett's Vibrant Matter. She talks about dead rats, bottle caps, gadgets, fire, electricity, berries, metal. I mean, she says... The political gate is open enough for non humans to slip through, for they also have the power to startle and provoke a gestalt shift in perception. What was trash becomes things. What was an instrument becomes a participant. And then she moves on to say, we might then entertain a set of crazy and not so crazy questions. Did the typical American diet play any role in engendering the widespread susceptibility to the propaganda leading up to the invasion of Iraq? Can an avian virus jump? from birds to humans and create havoc for systems of healthcare and international trade and travel. And that was published in 2009. I mention it because Max Porter seems to deliberately put this orange bottle top into this mix in the village. Dead Papa Toothwart, local historian, 74th generation cultural humor sifter is giving a bright orange fanta bottle top a tour of the village. The bottle cap comments that the village is beautiful and whats says, beauty is what my semi-synthetic friend, illness, decay and exploitation, a tapestry of small abuses, fights and littering, lake loads of unready chemicals piped into my waterbed, greed and decline, preaching, teaching, crying, dying, and walking the fucking dogs. But the bottle cap is bored and has stopped listening. <laughs> and it's like the bottle cap has arrived and is now a member of this community. And I I feel it's just straight from Jane Bennett. Gosh, isn't that interesting? Isn't it? It's such a beautifully wrought book. It just seems to stitch so many thoughts into this sort of fabric of outmoded English village.
0: So just back on Vibrant Matter for a moment, have you read Timothy Morton's Being Ecological? Yes. Oh, okay. So I only found out about this book actually this morning because Julie F. Hill, who's another artist posted it on her Instagram and I thought oh my gosh I'm gonna to have to add that to my mountainous collection of must-reads.
1: I think Timothy Morton I found him quite helpful actually in sort of I suppose coming to terms with uh, what does it mean to be ecological.
0: Yeah well one of the things that was said about his book is it means you cannot look down on poor suffering beings of the universe from a position outside time. Did you get that sense?
1: Yes, it's this feeling of being, of participating, of remaining in the moment and of being part of ecology.
0: So somebody who we haven't talked about much is Lanny himself. And so many people are really moved by this young boy. You know, he has all these questions about the world that he doesn't understand. And he asks his parents and his dad is often annoyed. And you get the sense that he is constantly annoyed by his questions And I got the impression that he wasn't actually a specifically gifted or a uniquely enchanting boy. He was just a boy in the way that children don't follow the rules of parents. Children Act weirdly and say bizarre things. And, you know, I remember my son saying, Mum, who gave God the job? You know, quite genuinely. And so I felt he was like the potential for any child, for every child. In the same way that Pete talks about Jolie coming over and saying, Oh, I'm hopeless with visual things. And then she makes a neat little shape out of moss or something on his table. And he says, You know, who's told her this? It must be like his mother being told she can't sing and then she never sings.
1: Yes. And he's somehow maintained his openness. I suppose later you get the view of him as a 13 year old, don't you? He's smoking behind the bike shed with his mate. But we've got him at this point where he's wide eyed and interested and engaged. And he asks his father, Dad, which, which do you think is the more patient, an idea or a hope? <laughs> what do you say? What
0: What can you say to that? So Liz, I'm thrilled you've selected that line because I actually already had it pegged as the perfect lead into your work. Because in your work, I see hope in its texture, its ephemerality, in its kinship with the turning of time. And I also see the idea in it being intricately connected with the reality of, say, ecological issues like global food shortages and wastage and disintegration Your work is deeply connected with nature and I mean that in a holistic way including you know the human animal. Just to explain briefly to listeners your large paintings are made of patchworked food recycling bags which are loosely stained with vegetable dyes and paint and I thought perhaps you could give us an insight to the impetus behind your work by describing your piece titled Tender which was selected for the John Moores Painting Prize.
1: Yes, great. So it's quite a large piece. And I was thinking about nourishment and self-care and also care for the earth. It's called Tender. um, And I wanted the title to maybe suggest bruising, but also a delicate touch and a kind of gentleness. And as you said just now, um, as with a lot of my larger works, It's made on these compostable cornstarch food waste recycling bags. It's this kind of thin, translucent material which is made from crops uh, such as corn or potato starch, but it's used to throw food away.
0: And that's just the standard bag you get from the council, right?
1: Yes. Um, I use some larger ones sometimes that are used for catering. But yes, yeah, certainly that's where I started. But you say standard, this material is being developed all the time. I like to use it partly because of its lightness and its connection to food and waste and to landscape. So it kind of floats as the air moves around it. So as people pass by, it can look a little bit as if bit breathing and it's not made to last, of course. So there's a sense of ephemerality and I suppose mortality about it. I colour it with water miscible paints and dyes that I make from food waste. So things like uh, the skins of vegetables or, say, the stones of avocados. And in this piece, Tender, I've embedded some seeds of medicinal plants in its seams. So things like yarrow, which is good for healing wounds, and chamomile, which has calming properties. I was also thinking about the plants that grow from these seeds, because the ones that I've chosen are also the constituents of a compost accelerator, which was invented by a gardener called May Bruce, working in the 1940s during wartime, a time of trauma. And she wanted to devise a kind of cheap, accessible, organic compost accelerator that anybody could use to promote compost making in their garden or with their allotment. So I just wanted to connect those ideas of self-care and care for the earth um, and new growth. And it's uh, sewn together with silk, so there's sort of a sense of suturing in it. And I mean, I said it will move as people walk past it. But of course, the John Moores is shut at the moment. No (laughs) one can go into the Walker Art Gallery, but it can be seen online. And I'm just waiting for the time when people can go and see it. And hopefully as they walk past, then it will have this sense of breathing and the internal shadows can be seen.
0: What's that like for you to see that online, knowing that without people walking past, it's not going to move? It's almost like a piece that's in waiting, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it does feel like that. I mean, I was in waiting because I, I didn't know what it would look like on the wall. Uh, but I really love the way they've hung it in the cut. There are all these sort of shadows underneath it that just touch the floor. So I think they've been really, really
0: sensitive. Speaking of sensitive, all the titles of your work, like Cradle, Graft, Skin, Plot, you know, they all seem almost like small-scale productions. So that idea of a woman who, through need create something that will accelerate the compost to provide food it's such a basic idea isn't it
1: yes and and when you think about when she did that it was so important I mean, people using all sorts of areas of land to, to grow food um, out of absolute necessity so her contribution seems absolutely fundamental She was very interested in the ideas around permaculture, but she wanted to simplify them and make them very accessible, but to avoid synthetic fertilizers. So this was something that anybody could achieve.
0: You could say the same with the vegetable dyes. What's your favorite? I know what my favorite (laughs) is.
1: Well, I do like avocado, but I don't eat a lot of avocados. I get some in a waste box sometimes from the local market. I think most recently I like carrot stalks. It's quite an old dye, wild carrot, and it's quite long-lasting, whereas some of the others are fairly ephemeral.
0: Okay, so avocado creates a purple, right?
1: It actually makes this beautiful kind of dusty pink. So you can use the skins and you can also use the stones pomegranate skin as well. That makes a beautiful yellow.
0: Oh okay. But what about the carrots? The stalks actually
1: make a lovely vivid bright yellow. Have you ever used the um or
0: can you still access the traditional purple carrots?
1: Um I think you can. I don't know if the leaves would give you a different colour. I mean I've tried using orange vegetables like carrots or um sweet potatoes and been really disappointed. You know, it doesn't automatically give you a bright orange just because you have a bright orange vegetable.
0: Now you know. Now I know, absolutely. I want to move on to a slightly different piece of work of yours, which is Graft, which was part of a show, uh, a two-person show at Julie Bentley's 163 Gallery. And... There's something I found in that which pointed towards ideas about ritual and framing, and it shifts away from the impact of the larger pieces. So I thought perhaps you could talk us through the ideas around that piece of work in that show.
1: That piece uh, was shown inside in the gallery, um, and it was something I'd been thinking about for some time. This material, when it's gone through the the process of being soaked in colours, Um, It can have quite a skin-like quality. It almost looks like ageing skin. And i I'd been reading a book called The Book of Skin, which talks about skin as a soft clock. And also ecological writers such as Donna Haraway or uh, Robin Wall Kimmerer. And I wanted to make a piece that suggested both landscape um, and that fragile layer of soil on which all life depends and our own skin. So to make that sort of connection between things. So it's coloured with vegetable dyes again, skins and stones, quite a lot of avocado dye in that one. And it's sewn together with silk. So I wanted to emphasise that sense of of sutures, almost like it had been operated on and, and sewn back together. And I started to use willow in that work as well because it's a natural material that's used in traditional crafts such as fencing and also because it has these beautiful thin tapering stems. So I made a kind of half frame to support the skin painting. I was thinking partly about framing it and supporting it thinking about a sense of touch as the thin willow just touches the floor as if it's extending a finger or you know when you grow beans you get those sort of tendrils that come out from them and they sort of reach out almost looking for a connection so those are really the, the thoughts behind that
0: piece Liz, I don't know what it's like to grow beans. (laughs)
1: Should I not talk about
0: beans? (laughs) You can talk about beans. But I do do have, uh, my son showed me that if you put the leftover part of the spring onion in a Mm. cup with water, it just grows more spring onion.
1: How often do you do that
0: then? I've just started doing it. (laughs) I'm setting up a laboratory along with a lot of other people who are putting things in water over lockdown.
1: One of the things I've been doing recently is taking cuttings, which is not something I've bothered to do before. But I just think it's miraculous. You can just take a little piece of plant and stick it in the soil and pow.
0: Yeah, it is quite magical speaking of lockdown you've created really a whole new series of work during lockdown which are images photographic images of household compost and what we see in those are these beautiful and naturally peculiar color mixes so for instance you might get courgette peels which bump up against onion skin In fact, that makes me think of the film, you know, the woman with the pearl earring where she's arranging all the whites from all the vegetables. Oh, such a beautiful scene. So they're mostly vegetable scraps and also dying flowers that are nestled within a black surround. And so when I started seeing those, and I love them, of course, I was thinking of Memento Mori and things dying and the question of what happens next because they're not dead if you like. And also, of course, of classical Dutch still life, you know, they're really embedded in classical painting. Tell me how these works came about and maybe you could talk us through them.
1: Uh, well, at the beginning of lockdown um, in 2020, I just felt completely thrown into reverse gear. I didn't know what to do. And um, a writer called Anna Sutera started a postal project called Vegetate in which artists were asked to respond to some writings that she sent out about the movement of plants. And I just happened to look into my compost bin in my kitchen, and I suppose I have this sort of compost of paintings in my mind. I I think, you know, all through my childhood, I used to look at painting all the time with my mother. We used to go to shows. I remember seeing this beautiful Goya in the National Gallery with this amazing glowing pink skin. And I went on and studied history of art after that and then eventually painting. So I just sort of by accident made this visual connection with some rather beautiful red onion skins and some garlic in the waste bin. And it sort of went from there. I I used those as my response to Anna's project and it developed into a kind of a diary really through lockdown, all sorts of things from the kitchen, any kind of plant waste I try to put into the compost. I think I have some anxieties about food that um, probably come from a childhood illness. And I was brought up in a house where nothing was wasted, nothing in the kitchen or the garden or the garage, everything was being put to use. And I often go to my local market and they have these rescue boxes of vegetables and fruit that are just gonna go in the skip if people don't want them. So they really need to be picked over. They're not really the sort of thing that could go to charity. And I find it very hard to leave them behind. I feel this sort of urge to <laughs> see everything in those boxes reach their potential. So I'll bring them home and maybe share some of the better stuff with my neighbours, make a lot of other things in the kitchen from the good stuff. And then, of course, there is quite a lot of waste that will go into the compost bin and then on into the compost in the garden. And of course, there is a connection to still life painting in particular. There's a beautiful book called Looking at the Overlooked by Norman Bryson, uh, which I remember reading back on my BA at Wimbledon. And I've been looking at again now. And there's some really interesting writing about some of the most valuable images of forced flowers. So the flower arrangement in itself would have been extremely expensive. And then a painting of the flower arrangement would have been incredibly expensive. And I think Bryson makes the point that what is being valued is not a gift from nature. It's actually the embedded labour in what's being produced. And so I think there's a, a connection for me looking at these sort of paintings in my bin, a sense of all the resources that may have gone into producing the food, which is actually then discarded. And I feel, I mean, I feel very strongly about that as an environmental issue, Um, but I think there's also huge potential there. I mean, there's potential to improve our environmental situation by redistributing that food waste and not wasting it. And also maybe by a redistribution of the excess calories consumed, particularly in the Western world. So by putting things into the compost bin, I look into my bin and I try to see a wider picture. So I produced one with mussel shells in, which is called mussel shells and Binds like stars. And another one with sweet potato and an orange that look a little bit like planets. And I called that one the heat of the sun. I think about this sort of breakdown to elements to look at the waste, but consider where that food has come from and the fuel and the labor, et cetera, that has gone into it. And I suppose I find a kind of hopefulness in thinking about that process of breakdown into elements, the recycling and putting waste or there is no waste really in nature. And my, my husband often says to me, he looks at me and he says, you are stardust. <laughs> and he doesn't mean it romantically yes he and, does <laughs> well maybe he does but I think maybe the rational side comes forward first so I, I think he's emphasizing that rational idea of all the elements that make up us having been produced in stars I saw a really interesting documentary actually recently on the history of the periodic table and how each element was discovered and what the properties are. It was just absolutely fascinating.
0: Liz, that actually sounds a little bit boring. So why was that so fascinating?
1: (laughs) Well, I suppose... I mean, my my father was actually a science teacher and I was terrible at chemistry. You know, I just couldn't get interested. So I think perhaps for me to watch a documentary about something or a film, it just makes it much easier for me to absorb. I mean, I grew up being much more interested in art, but my father was he was interested in everything. You know, he made bread with us and it was really a lesson about what yeast can do. We used to go on holidays in a borrowed caravan to North Wales or or Scotland. But now I just love that smell of boggy ground, or you open the door and you get that rush of cold air in the the morning. I think more and more about the interest that he had. He just had this real interest in the world and in in everything around him.
0: Isn't it interesting how You're a real product then of both of your parents in the context of art. And uh, I know that you bumped off school to see art with your Mm mum and as well as your dad. And that I guess you could say that scientific side of your dad. But to me, when I think of your work and when I think of how it comes about and the sort of if you like a sort of open research that you have that goes into it. It's, it's very personal, this interaction with the landscape or everything from the landscape outside of the urban environment to inside with your recycling. It's all part of the same process. And you are also quite a walker up in Scotland still, right? When you're allowed out.
1: <laughs> well, yes, actually, I was supposed to spend a month in the Outer Hebrides last year, but unfortunately that couldn't happen. I really love going to the Scottish Islands and Harris and the outer Hebrides is somewhere that's very special to me and, and also to my husband and my friends. But a couple of years ago I went to Orkney and it's quite different from Harris. It, it's much more fertile, it's very green. There's a lot of dairy produce coming from there and it has this incredible fund of Neolithic sites. And I just remember standing at the Ring of Brodgar and having this feeling of the vastness of the landscape and time almost collapsing then also going to a site called Maze Howe, which is a neolithic cairn but it was broken into by vikings in the 12th century and they drew on the walls in this beautiful writing called twig runes Mm. they look like delicate twigs but actually the writing says quite banal things so i can't remember exactly what it says but it's something like you know Olaf was here and this is what he did (laughs) it's really you know from the vastness of the landscape to this tiny little banal act I just find fascinating
0: that sounds incredibly moving I mean, it just really connects back to the book, doesn't it? Of Lanny walking through the forest and he decides to collect all these magical things and his idea of what's magical, perhaps sensible adults wouldn't find magical, but it's really beautiful. And he, coming back to your idea of potential, he represents, in my view, the potential for every child. Therefore, he represents the potential for every adult. I mean, you're still in complete wonder about the Orkneys, for instance, and I'm sure a lot of people experience that.
1: I love that bit in the book where Pete, the artist, says to Lanny, and they're starting a drawing, and he just says, you can do anything. And for me it really talks about that state of potential. I think it's something that I think about quite a lot. It's something that I find quite hopeful. I mean in my past I've, I've made paintings where I've tried to get a sense of the ground and the mark um, having an equivalence. Neither takes precedence and also having big voids in them where I have sort of removed a piece of paper. So it looks as if the mark is just left over from making another painting. So you can't quite tell if the painting is being made or, or being unmade at the same time. Just trying to say that nothing, nothing takes precedence in there. Mm. I mean, I've also made work um, on transparent grounds and then taken it outside and maybe put it in the sea in the Outer Hebrides or put it in the canal in Hackney Wick when I had a studio there and then taken the remains back into the studio and photographed them and then painted back over those remains. So I suppose I think of it as sort of the remains of the remains and and kind of sorting through them just to see what can be salvaged. I mean, I love Katerina Grosser's work where her paintings kind of spill out into all over the architecture or out into the landscape. And it feels as if they've got no limits. Uh, there was a wonderful show at South London Gallery a couple of years ago and she had these huge absences in the work. It looked as if she'd masked off part of the wall and then removed that masking. It was It was just wonderful. That felt to me like pure potential.
0: Yeah, I saw that show. I just think she's absolutely incredible and I totally understand what you mean about the expanse of her work and the richness and also... On the one hand, she's masking out and you have these absences and there's all the ideas around that, obviously, but it's also very much about the process of painting as well because we mask off areas that we want to maintain or that we want to hold back on. And she is exposing those kind of rules and turning them around, questioning them in her work. And one of the people that you said was very important to you uh, who's connected to that sort of rule breaking or actually not not so much rule breaking, but the sort of breakdown of rules and therefore questioning what might be the rules then or are there any rules or what rules are necessary, if any, is uh, Angela de Cruz. Her work very much sits between painting and sculpture, you know, breaking with the traditional form of both disciplines. So can you talk to me a bit about what you see in her work? What draws you to that? I, I would
1: classify both Angela's work and um, Katerina's work, as, and I'm not sure Katerina was agreeing with it, but as the expanded field of painting, mm. um, which is where I kind of situate my work as well. And with Angela de la Cruz's work, I can't remember when I first saw it, but I think her initial work in this expanded field practice began at the Slade when she took the stretcher bars out of a painting and it resulted in a kind of crumpled, deflated skin, which was half supported by seemingly broken bones of, of, of the stretcher. And I think there's a kind of challenging of authority of painting in her work that really chimes with me. When I made one of my compost images of a bunch of tulips that I picked up during lockdown, I just loved the way that um, after the flowers had faded, I put them into the compost bin. And the stalks had kind of broken and they had that sense of broken bones. And of course, the tulip to me uh, reminds me of those Dutch still life paintings and the tulip crisis and that collapse in that bubble.
0: Tulips definitely do die very beautifully. (laughs) They do. (laughs) Yeah. And it kind of connects to a piece that you found pivotal as well, which is Michael Landy's breakdown. That's a different kind of breakdown, obviously, but you can't help but see that the ideas behind them are very much intertwined. There was a great interview with Michael Landy just recently because it's 20
1: years since he made that piece. In 2001, when he destroyed all of his belongings at a CNA store that had shut down on Oxford Street. And I actually went and saw it. And I'm just so glad that I did because I think about it so much. One of the things he said was that it was a kind of dismantling of consumerism. And I just thought that was such an amazing thought. You know, if, if something can be dismantled, maybe it can change and we can have something new we can remake structures and the economy and our society.
0: Yeah, there's no doubt that consumerism is so tightly linked with ecological concerns. And I guess ways of thinking about the landscape and how that's changed over time. I mean, one painting that you highlighted to me is William Dice's Pegwell Bay. And Mm. we can think of that in terms of a particular way to depict landscape in the past. And we can also see landscape that's depicted in the context of ownership by the elite versus let's say, a a landscape painting of children collecting shells or whatever, you know, there's a very different message. And that brings me to Gem Finer's Long Player, which is a different way, again, of how landscape might be depicted in art. Just to briefly explain, this is a project that was developed between 1995 and 1999 with Art Angel. And it's a 1,000-year-long musical composition which began at midnight on 31st of December 1999 and will play without repetition until the end of 2999 when it will complete its cycle and begin again just the beginning with I'm going to do this completely fascinates me Uh, anyway it can be heard in the lighthouse at Trinity Boy Wharf is that where you've heard it?
1: Uh, yes, yes, I did. I mean, I, I didn't hear it at the Millennium, which is when he first made it. I heard it sometime after that. And it was a really amazing experience, I thought, to go up to the top of this lighthouse and look out over Docklands. And you have repetitive melodic music playing in the background. As you look out, you can see the gulls um, kind of circling the lighthouse. Time seems to slow down and you can't help but think, well, what would this landscape have looked like a thousand years ago and what will it look like in a thousand years time. But somehow the music just gives you that space to be really quiet and have this almost meditative experience of just looking and thinking. And I I love the way that you connected that with the William Dice, the Victorian pre-Raphaelite painting of people on the shore and his family are looking for fossils and there's just the hint of a comet in the sky, and he describes this moment. The title is very specific, that it is this particular day in this particular year. And of course, it was around the time when Darwin's ideas were coming to the fore, and the discovery of fossils was relatively recent. So there's a whole change in um, ideas around space and around the depth of time. I think it's really an incredible painting.
0: It just shows you how gem Finer's Long Player, by slowing you down, time becomes eternal. Like T.S. Eliot's Burnt Norton and then that will open up another piece of work that might have been from a century beforehand. And that's the work, if you like, outside its framework, like we were talking about before, like we were talking about Graft and Angela Dela Cruz. And there's also Sam Gilliam and, you know, lots of painters who have questioned the rules of painting as part of their work. We are going to have to finish up in a moment, but I just want to quickly ask you, Liz Elton, what are you reading at the moment or watching, or listening to? Luckily, I'm
1: very grateful to be part of a couple of reading groups, one um, organised by, by Liz Merton and another one by Alice McCabe, which I'm finding incredibly helpful. At the moment, um, I'm reading Merlin Sheldrake's Entangled Life, discussing the world of fungi. Oh, I mean, of course, there's the Anna Tsing book as well, The Mushroom at the End of the World, which is how the harvesting of this mushroom entwines with economics and history and social interactions. And that's just a, a beautiful book, actually. And I've just read Tim D's Landfill, which is about gulls and landfills. How will they survive? Now, we don't put food waste into landfill. There's a wonderful moment in that book where workers have gone down to the river to offer part of their lunch to the gulls. And one of them looks the gull in the eye and there's sort of an exchange of of the gaze, almost like the scavenger recognising the scavenger. And I've just started um, Sue Stewart Smith's The Well-Gardened Mind, which is fascinating, all about the connection between gardening and plants and our own health. What else have I... Liz, that's enough.
0: How can you read all that at the same time?
1: (laughs) Well, I do tend to dot around, I have to say. And then sometimes I just sit on the sofa and watch some mindless comedy, which is really nice.
0: (laughs) I can definitely relate to that. In that book about the gulls, does that talk at all about the Chincha Islands harvesting bird poo? Guano. <laughs> yeah, guano as a fertilizer. It was Din Q Lee. He's a Vietnamese artist. He did a piece on that called The Colony. Actually, that was another Art Angel project. I happened to write a review of it for This Is Tomorrow Magazine. Well, I must read that. I haven't,
1: I can't remember if Tim D actually mentioned it in the book. He, oh, okay. he goes to so much. And some of the book actually takes place around Chew Valley Lake, which is a place I used to go as a child when you were talking about the gulls, Mm. I was thinking about um, a trip that we made to St Kilda a couple of years ago, which is the this huge colony of gannets on the stacks near St Kilda. And it's just like this swirling whiteness and Mm. all the rocks are covered in this white guano.
0: So Liz, if we were allowed to go out, We could see your work at the moment at uh, White Conduit Projects and as part of the John Moores Prize exhibition. Uh, Anyway, so tell me what you've got coming up. Well, the White Conduit Projects is still on to the middle
1: of the month. Um, Then there are some group shows coming up. One is going to be in Nottingham. It's about the expanded field of painting, and that is curated by Paul Bramley and um, Alison Kehan. There is a show that I think is going to be in a garden. And then later this year, I hope this is going to happen. I have a Artist in Residence Award from the Mark Rothko Memorial Fund, which means I should be spending a month in Latvia in the place that Rothko was born.
0: Gosh, that would be really, really exciting. And it would also be interesting to experience that landscape. I read an interview with Roscoe's son and daughter recently and I think it was his son who said that Rothko claimed that he wasn't influenced by the landscape in Latvia and yet when Dilwyn Smith went on that residency, he felt the landscape was very connected to Roscoe's paintings but more in the sort of shutters and doors of all the wooden houses there. So it'd be interesting to see what you see in it. I,
1: I went to a talk that um, Dilwyn did, and he, he mentioned that. And, I mean, Roscoe left there when he was, I think, age 10. It's, it's such an interesting place, though, of sort of shifting borders. I mean, it was part of Russia when Roscoe was born there. It's now part of Latvia. It's very close to the border with Belarus and Lithuania and it has a very traumatic history. I don't know what will come of it, but I think it will be very interesting to think about the land and the soil that is there. I'm hoping to make some installations in some abandoned buildings, which look very atmospheric. And also I'll be taking Rothko's
0: writings with me Gosh, that's going to be completely fascinating. I do think that age zero to 10 are deeply influential times in terms of what you might see that you may not recall consciously, but I guess I'm quite a believer in the idea that the landscape, and I I don't necessarily mean like the great outdoors or anything, it could be an urban landscape, but these things become sort of embedded in our bones and brings us back to your work and that paradox where you can't really clearly separate your experience in the world from the world. Anyway, Liz Elton, thank you so much for being on Art Fictions today. You've been a great guest.
1: Thank you so much, Gillian. I've really enjoyed it. I
0: love Art Fictions. Thank you to listeners and also to today's guest artist, Liz Elton. If you'd like to support this series, please subscribe and rate, both of which make a huge difference to access for other listeners. And of course, feel free to get in touch with me via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram or my website, gilliannype.co.uk. Ace, (laughs) you know what I'm going to do today? I'm so excited. I'm gonna go and pick up some art materials from AP Fitzpatrick. Oh brilliant. Mainly pigment powders. Have you used them Mark?
1: Um I have used them. Gosh, right back on foundation, thinking about blue. Eve Klein's blue. Eve Klein. Eve Klein, yeah, Eve Klein's blue. And I was trying to get that.